Well, hello everybody and welcome to another episode of GUcast. This is Declan Murphy, urologist here at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne, uh, joined as ever by my co-host Renu Eben. Hello Renu. Hello Declan, great to be back. Yes, nice to be back and nice to be back with another um, uh, contentious topic, or slightly contentious I would say. We want to have another yeah. ro- robust discussion today. It's been we? an exciting week for renal cancer though, you know, a long-awaited trial uh, gets published. Yeah, it is. So that's what we're going to talk so, about today, yeah. a, a really big landmark study, Keynote yeah. uh, 564, uh, which... Uh, was presented in plenary session at ASCO, which is always a big deal if something gets into plenary. We love seeing GU yep. in plenary. Um, uh, and now recently, just last week, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So it's a fantastic study to talk about. Um, certainly big uh, implications for practice change. So it's really good to be able to feature this paper today, isn't it? Absolutely. Brand new. Just uh, eight days ago it was published. Yeah, fantastic. And we're welcoming back one of our old friends into the studio as well, uh, Dr. Ben Tran, uh, GU medical oncologist here at Peter Mac in Melbourne. Ben, welcome back. Thanks for having me, guys. I, I thought you'd forgotten about me. I haven't been on for a, quite a long time. <laughs> ben, fresh from the makeup chair, looks great. <laughs> Welcome yeah, back, Ben. Me. Thank you, Ben. And Ben uh, leads our GU Medong team and is head of the GU Clinical Trials Unit uh, here at Peter Mac. So uh, thanks very much for coming back, Ben. Um, and we would like to then welcome our international guests as well. We have uh, the great privilege of welcoming uh, Dr. Uh, Tony Chueri, uh, who is first author uh, on the Keynote 564 study. So, Tony, welcome to GU Cast. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, and also on screen here as well, you can see uh, old friend um, Dr. Alex Kudakov, a urologist and uh, chair of urologic oncology at Fox Chase uh, Cancer Center um, in Philadelphia. Hey, welcome back, Alex. Nice to see you. Thanks for thanks for having me. What a privilege! It's great to have you, Alex. We're surrounded by too many medical oncologists. We need another urologist oh, to just uh, balance it a little bit. <laughs> Declan and I are just feeling oh. A little uncomfortable. <laughs> Come on, we love them. But, you know, we want, I think, on this topic uh, to definitely bring urology into the topic. And that's why it's yeah. great to have Alex on the line as well, because the, the study we're talking about today, the population of patients we're talking about are urology patients. These are post-nephrectomy uh, patients. And so this study is really important for us uh, to, to digest and see how it impacts on our patients. So it's a great, uh, great privilege to have these eminent guests uh, here on the podcast today to talk about it. And Tony, we thought we would uh, first of all invite you to just give us a, a brief reminder and in the show notes and on YouTube, we'll put links out uh, to the paper and to other coverage of the paper. But do you mind just running through a bit about Keynote uh, 564? What were the patients? What was the study design um, and the key, um, the key uh, results? So this was a phase three tri- trial uh, trying to ask the question if uh, one more attempt at uh, immunotherapy, now that we have new drugs, uh, new immunotherapies for the past 5-10 years, checkpoint inhibitors with PD-1, PDL one inhibitor, CTLA-4 inhibitor. If they do better than the TKIs, if they do better than the cytokines, it's been 30 years since the first trial of cytokines. And for that, we designed Keynote 564, where patients with high-risk, uh, intermediate high or high-risk renal cell cancer or M1 NED, which we believe at that time, and we continue to believe is an unmet need, would benefit from pembrolizumab. This was a phase three study of uh, pembrolizumab versus placebo, almost enrolled a thousand patients. The primary endpoint was disease-free survival. We looked at your at the usual uh, culprits in terms of um, you know secondary endpoints such as overall survival, safety. Uh, quality of life and the study there was a press release followed by a plenary session at ASCO and most recently 
a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine. Disease-free survival was prolonged with pembrolizumab over placebo with a 32% decrease in the risk of recurrence or death. And, you know, safety-wise, important always to look at safety. There was no signal that uh, Pembro in the Advent setting, specifically in renal cell cancer, there was no new really safety uh, signals. And um, early data from quality of life did not show any decrease in quality of life. We had also a quick and quite early analysis of overall survival after only 51 event that showed a trend in the right direction. So that's, you know, in a couple of words, what Keynote 564 showed. Yeah, terrific. So, um, Ben, we'll talk a little bit about the uh, the DFS, the big Kaplan-Meier, the, the key uh, primary endpoint. But about the patient population, can you tell us your thoughts? You manage a lot of these patients for us. You manage the metastatic renal cells for us. But for years, we've been supporting adjuvant trials here um, and all around the world. And they've all failed pretty miserably. We can talk about S-Track, I suppose, but they have failed. So it's been an unmet need population. Uh, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on this population in this study in particular. So there's a real need, right? There's a real need in these patients. These patients, if they recur, they develop a terminal cancer, cancer that's no longer curable. So we'd love to be able to increase the number of patients who can be cured following a nephrectomy. And that's where there's a real need for the impressive adjuvant therapy. TKIs and cytokines have come and, come and gone. They haven't really provided the benefit. This patient population's different to the metastatic patient population. Now, I think the, the adjuvant setting... Patients are perhaps a little less tolerable, and that's what we saw with the TKI data. Patients weren't staying on the TKIs long enough to get perhaps the benefit we were hoping for. And we're hoping with the IO approach that patients will benefit from that more. IO is very exciting to patients and clinicians. You know, everyone wants a bit of IO, but a bit of immunotherapy to help their cancer. And I think there's, the, the data that Tony's presented is really impressive. I think it, it has the real potential to become practice-changing. The question is the OS. It is, mm -hmm. and we'll get to the OS in a second. But I suppose thinking about the patient population, so it, it's reasonably heterogeneous. So uh, it includes sort of three groups of patients. We have the, these are all post-nephrectomy. We have the intermediate and high risk, which is 86% of the, the study population. Uh, and these are patients who are either PT2 and high grade, grade four. That's what I think we call intermediate. Um, or high, um, high risk, which is PT3. Uh, any grade. And this this is 86% of the population. And then the other 14% are um, high-risk PT4 uh, or N1, um, or they've actually had metastatic disease resected. So they're M1, NED, very interesting populations. But this 86%, the real big chunk of it, is intermediate and high-risk. And I suppose the question I have uh, as a urologist is, um, you know, is it really the whole population that are likely to benefit from adjuvant? Because clearly a concern I think we would have, Renew, is over-treatment. Like, what about the, the loads of the PT2s who maybe aren't going to relapse? Do you have a sense that yeah. the, one, the ones we've tended to want to support have been the PT3s or higher and above? And I'll ask Tony to comment about, Ben, we send you these patients, so what do you think about the this population, the lower end of it? Yeah, I guess I don't think they actually represent that large a proportion of patients, right? So I went back and looked at one of the private pathology providers here. They had about 300 uh, nephrectomies over three years. And the proportion of that that was actually just T2, and we didn't split the grades, but T2 was only about 80 out of the 100, 60 to 80 out of 100, the 300 patients. With the rest of it, so the, the 220, 230, uh, was all T3 and beyond. So I don't, I'd be interested to know what Tony found in the study, but I don't think the T2 represents that larger proportion of patients. Yeah, Tony, what, can yeah. you tell us a little more about that? 
Yeah, T two represented T one and T two were less than uh, you know ten percent together. T two was around okay. five six percent. This is in the supplement of the paper that was just published. That unfortunately uh, nobody reads. Everybody looks at uh, at Twitter. So this is a stab at Twitter at uh, Alex that has an extremely large uh, Twitter followers and uh, you know nobody. It's it's less than ten percent T two. Um, but one thing I want to add, Declan, is that honestly, in any solid tumor, when you hear the word adjuvant, you hear the word overtreatment. No doubt, because surgery can cure, even in M1 NED, it can cure a significant number of patients. So this is not an issue for renal cell, for bladder, for prostate, an issue for breast cancer. There is always surgery alone, I would say, can cure a proportion of patients. Today, we do not know at all in any shape, way, or form using prognostic factors from the tumor or clinical prognostic factor that Alex actually and uh, Rob Uzo and many other folks uh, you know, have pioneered. We don't know who are the patient. We are starting to scratch the surface a bit with circulating tumor DNA, but if there is uh, one tumor will be the last, will be renal cell cancer because this tumor doesn't shed DNA much, doesn't shed tumoral DNA. And even when you try to oversmart it and do bespoke assays that look at uh, really the top mutation, et cetera, the sensitivity remains very low. And that's work from um, you know colleagues uh, of Alex at, at Fox or Chase. So I think in renal, we're, we're a bit safe to you know, follow exactly the eligibility criteria of the, of the trial. Yeah, terrific. Yeah, that but makes more the, sense. The OS is is uh, is certainly it's it's dominated a lot of the conversation afterwards, hasn't it? So, uh, Ben, you know, what's your comment on that? Before we go to let's talk to Alex next about his his thoughts on DFS and uh, and OS. But what are your thoughts? on I think this? IO is very different to TKIs, right? So the way TKIs work, you know, you'd, you'd hope there'd be a DFS benefit, and there wasn't across the board, and that that speaks to tolerability of treatment. But I, you don't really expect an OS benefit. You look at the TKI studies in lung cancer, even in GIST. Dramatic DFS benefit, no real demonstrable OS benefit, but IO is different. Right? IO is getting your own immune system to go and, and get at these cancer cells if, if, if there are any residual cancer cells. And the trend from um, 564, there is a trend towards an overall cyber benefit. There was never a trend in S-Track. I think with more mature data, we'll see an, a significant overall survivor benefit. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Ben, can I just ask, what are your thoughts on um, categorizing M1? patients with localised disease patients. I love it. <laughs> I, I congratulate Tony for including these patients into this study because yeah. we need data on these patients. We know these patients are at high risk of recurring and they're probably the ones that might gain the greatest benefit yeah. from an adjuvant yeah. approach. Yeah, and, and I think the, the, the uh, forest plot's showing that. But um, Alex, uh, over to you. How is this, uh, how's this being received uh, in the US and what are your thoughts on the DFS, I suppose, as a really valid endpoint? Well, Declan, before before I start and dive in, I mean, I know this is sort of a urologist-facing podcast. This is, you know, I know my trainees now listen to you guys. This is, you know, uh, this uh, this is a big deal. So for me to come on, for me to get an invite to debate the Tony Chiari, I just want to contextualize this to the urologist out there. <laughs> this is, you know, Tony is nice, and Tony mentors a lot of people, but Tony is a powerhouse. I mean, for those who don't know Tony's work, 
I mean, he's really like the supreme ruler of the Dana Farber. Like, he's got Asco by the horns. They do whatever Tony <laughs> wants. I mean, he's got like 600 manuscripts just this year. <laughs> Guy spits out New England Journal papers like AUA abstracts. John, did you even know that this was the New England Journal? Like, it's he, one of the he's preparing. He's preparing to kill me. That's how he no, started. No, no. So, I mean. <laughs> The guy's got a Wikipedia page. Look up Tony's Wikipedia page. The picture is really good. Um, so, you know, there, there are people even, you know, Tony knows that I, I worship, you know, guys like you know, Elon Musk. But Tony doesn't know that there are like people have, you know, shrines in their office to not only oh Elon God. Musk, but to, 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 to Tony as well. You know? So um, this is, you know, to ask me to debate him on a paradigm shifting paper is like feeding me to the proverbial wolves. I mean, you know, thanks, Irina. Thanks, Declan. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Wow. But honestly, look at honestly, that photo. This, I'm done. Yeah. Honestly, and, oh, by the way, the photo, Rutul Patel was a medical student with me in clinic today, and I thank him for the props. So, wow. Um, oh yeah. So, you know, but honestly, this won't be too hard. You know, urologists were surgeons and uh, all surgeons are pragmatists. I mean, you know, Tony's fancy forest plots and his hazard ratios, you know, won't, won't fool the surgeons to send all of our patients to, you know, take uh, pembrolizumab showers. I mean, it's just not, <laughs> not, not what we're going to do. The data are preliminary, the risks are real. And the costs, the costs, Tony, are astronomical, right? So before we dive in, I would like I would like to just ask Tony two questions. Okay. So two questions I have to start this, you know, sort of back and forth here is are we curing an additional number of patients or are we delaying radi radiographic evidence of disease on the scans? Right. That's been the big debate in adjuvant. Yeah. And if if it's the latter, if we're just delaying, would the effect be the same if we, you know, would Declan alluded to, would the effect be the same if we gave the drug later? And I think those two questions are really going to be where the rubber hits the road with the urologist sending everybody for adjuvant. Um, and, but, you know, just, just, just to say this, you know, Tony walked into a graveyard of effort. I mean, how many trials were negative here and how, you know, were pe people really thought that you know, there's going to be really no adjuvant a therapy that's going to show this kind of signal and, you know, huge congrats. This is, this is a, you know, an amazing achievement, but I, I really think that, you know, this question of are we changing people's destiny and we're really curing more people or are we just delaying the scans turning positive? And if it's the latter, can we just give the Pembro later or give it with, as Declan said, with a TKI together? Yeah. Well, after all that adulation, uh, Tony, what what are your what's your reaction? Oh it's it's effusive. Oh you're, pro you're, you're probably used to it, I suppose. But you know, no, not at all. <laughs> I wish my mom was here. It's the only person that anything <laughs> else would have thrown eggs and tomato at me. So uh, you know, but I have my picture. This. What do you say? That I think that these are very reasonable thought. I do. I am the first one to admit that twenty four months of median follow up, follow up is short. And hopefully more follow up, uh, you know, because despite that, I would say the event and, you know, well, Alex and Declan and everybody, the event, a lot of them happened, most of them, the first two years. But if you look at uh, many trials that were negative, uh, like Astrak, uh, sorry, like Assure, Astrak was actually positive. positive. But if you look at the Astrak, Placebo and Assure and all these studies, Despite most of the patient, a lot of them, the first two years decrease and the curve, you know, is like this. 
between year three and five, a significant number of patients, you know, do experience progression. So we certainly need more follow-up. But why I think as of today, and, you know, I stand by that, and I think it, it will be proven to be right, that this is not just a delay, that there will be patient to be cured, is that the treatment with pembrolizumab was uh, for a year. Now, and after a year, if you look at the curve from year one, from year one to year two, I wish I can say year one to year three or four, where there was no pembrolizumab given, the curve is still do not merge. Now, you could argue that the pembrolizumab have life is not like a TKI. There's an effect that you know stays over a year, but I'm a bit you know, optimistic here, unlike the studies earlier with adjuvant that had bevacizumab, where there was an early separation of the curve, and you, soon as you stop bevacizumab, another tumor like colorectal cancer, you know, the curve have merged. So I am actually positive here that I'm quite positive that things will continue the same. Now, if you are saying that, look, you need an overall survival benefit, I do respect that. That's not going to have you know, happen anytime soon. We have 51 events. The second interim analysis need an additional, I, I know I can't recall, like maybe 80, 90 uh, events. So you're going to wait uh, on that. But the early signs are positive if you discuss it with the patient. On the other hand, I, I would argue that we have seen, and we all deal with bladder cancer, I, you know, here, we have seen adjuvant nivolumab in bladder cancer being FDA approved yeah. and probably immediately accepted uh, based on a disease-free survival benefit without even mention of an OS, knowing that there are other adjuvant uh, you know, approaches like platinum-based therapies. We can debate that forever, cisplatin, carboplatin, where I would think that adjuvant TKI is, you know, way less importance than adjuvant platinum in renal cell than adjuvant platinum in uh, high-risk bladder cancer. So those are my two things, but I think, Alex, it's a very reasonable uh, thought. And folks that want OS have to wait for OS. And I think that's what you see a bit of a split in the community out there. I think the reaction from the medical oncology community um, uh, at ASCO and on Twitter after the paper is very much, you know, I think Quantum Leap is how uh, Rana McKay, she did a beautiful editorial mm. and a beautiful discussion at ASCO. Quantum Leap, I think, is what she said. But many of us think, well, we need to wait for OS. And one of the reasons I think that's important is because the treatment of these patients when they do become metastatic has really advanced by, you know, through people like yourself, Tony and Tom Powell's senior author, who have shown us that combination IO, IO, VEGF uh, treatments are really, really, really effective for these patients when they do relapse. So that's my question to you about the control arm of this study, uh, because obviously it straddles the eras. But do we have a sense in the control arm that when the patients do relapse, are they getting uh, combination IOs, which we would consider to be standard of treatment, because presuming that they're not actually getting, or many of them do not get a combination IO, it's not really the same as we, the way we manage the control arm nowadays, because when they relapse, they get combination IOs if they're high, intermediate and high risk and uh, sort of patients. So do you have a sense of that, that it, is it reasonable to say that uh, these patients, the control arm patients nowadays will be getting different management to the control arm in this study and that that will explain why the, the OS would be different, I reckon, um, if you compare it against what would be contemporary uh, standard of care. 
And it's difficult, so, isn't it? Because uh, just before we answer that, Tony, because a lot of these patients came from outside the US. So the management of the, of the control arm is not necessarily uniform across all of them. Would that be correct, uh, Tony? Yes and no at the same time. Let me tell you why I have mixed feelings here. First of all, I mean, you mentioned there is, you know, part in the paper buried somewhere where we look at subsequent therapy, but you're right. We don't look at forget combination, et cetera. And we looked at um, in, in, in these patients, more so on placebo, obviously, because more patients on placebo did, did experience progression. We look at uh, anti-cancer therapies. We look at radiation therapy. We look at surgery because some of the folks, you know, recur and still surgical candidate, um, you know, for metastatectomy. And between the placebo-treated patient or the placebo arm, and the pembro arm, usually it's the same. The same percentage of patients got uh, anti-cancer therapy, got radiation, and got surgery. So we are, we're fine like that. Now, will there be any patient that relapsed and maybe never got something? Uh, yes. And that is not something, even on the placebo, if there is more folks, which I don't know yet, that, that means they should have been on adjuvant pembrolizumab. That means that if you relapse, uh, you don't have the chance to get systemic therapy. We assume in big academic center where we were work, we all work, if our patient did experience progression, they're automatically going to be salvaged by systemic therapy. First of all, we have no proof of that. Some progression are quite bad. They're associated with significant medical events, such as, you know, uh, DVTs, PEs, you know, they can get treated. Some of them have uh, relapses in the brain. It makes systemic therapy, you know, harder. So as long as we treat, you know, earlier, despite I would be the first to admit that there will be over-treatment, maybe this patient does not need or does have the time to get systemic therapy. That's real balance, yeah, isn't I- it? Over-treatment versus leaving it almost to a point where you can't treat or can't, can't treat effectively. Sorry, Alex, you were going to say something. I was just going to ask Tony about the control arm a little bit. So Tony, I mean, this, this is probably a question that comes up, but you know, the people speak about the, you know, the magnitude of the DFS for, uh, you know, for five, six, four, but you know, when you were designing this, this was right on the heels of S-Track. I mean, S-Track was published in 2016. You started enrolling in 2017. Can you sort of give us a little bit of insight? I mean, Estrag had an 8% over five-year disease-free survival advantage to, to sunitinib. Um, what, what kind of discussion took place about using sunitinib as the control instead, yeah. of, uh, instead of placebo? Yeah, no, it was a big discussion. Uh, you are right. But the fact that the result with TKIs were completely inconsistent, you know, all the trial besides Astrak were um, uh, negative. Uh, we also tried to replicate Astrak inside Assure, a study, as you know, Fox Chase. The Naomi House paper, yeah. No, no, yeah, no. Naomi House yep. paper, where yep. we look at the, not just the highest risk patient, because there is no doubt Astrak have higher risk patient than Assure. We looked at those patients, I mean, Assure is a 2,000 patient. Uh, so we looked at that. We looked at the highest of the highest risk, T4N1. And we looked at the quartile, the highest quartile of the dosing, because uh, Assure, you know, re- reduced the dose at some point, starting dose at 37.5. Well, Astrak didn't do that. We looked at that. I know it's a subgroup analysis, but when you have 2,000 patients and another drug, sorafenib, not just sunitinib, 
we did not find any effect on disease-free survival or overall survival. And other studies started coming negative. And also don't forget there's a discrepancy in Assure. Assure has a disease-free survival benefit by center review. But when you look at investigator assessment, there is no effect. The p-value is not significant. We felt, rightly so, because other adjuvant studies that were planned after or around the same time, we asked a lot of patient advocates, what do they think? We felt that not having treatment, rather having sunitinib, is very reasonable. And we consulted with the FDA, and there was also an NCI trial at that time ongoing by the name, it just finished uh, accrual by the name Prosper. So we're looking heavily at it because, you know, I'm sure all stakeholders with the NCI, the GU steering committee got involved and we didn't feel we should replace that by sunitinib. Yeah, and it's interesting with S-Track because it was a very positive endpoint for DFS and it did lead to FDA approval, yet there was no OS, uh, of course. And, and listening to all the discussion after um, ASCO, um, you know, that's the question, why hasn't the community adopted um, it as a standard of care? Because it has a DFS positive endpoint and it's FDA approved. But uh, Ben, do you have any, any thoughts on that? We, we don't have access to it here, but what's, what, what, what is the reason why the, the community rejected the positive DFS endpoint that led to FDA approval, is it because they didn't like the OS, the fact that OS was missed? I think it's a combination of things. I think, yes, definitely the OS was probably the biggest factor, but the tolerability, the number of dose reductions, the number of patients who discontinued treatment, all those sorts of things kind of clouded it and there wasn't minimal uptake um, in the community, I'd say. And Renu, I mean, I, I yeah, sorry. I would just I discussed that track with all my high risk, you know, uh, high risk uh, lo- localized patients. And I mean, the way I contextualize it to them is that there is, you know, like Tony said, there's multiple trials, uh, sure, uh, prosper, I mean, um, that um, Everest, uh, there, were, there were, you know, just a slew of trials that showed no ad, you know, advantage to adjuvant, but what, what S-Track really showed and the way I try to explain this to patients is that if you take a drug, you know, for a year, you will have clean, you know, clean scans for an extra year. What, what we don't know if you're going to live longer if you take this drug. What we do know that in the S-Track, you basically had, had nearly 100% of patients had side effects. Um, so we know we're going to get side effects. We know your, your scans are going to st- stay clean you know, for longer. But um, whether you're going to live longer, it's unclear. Um, I think that discussion still applies to you know, 564. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I hear Tony and I, I mean, I, you know, I trust Tony's intuition. I think there, I think he's probably right that it's, it's going to really, you know, the needle is going to move with this as the data mature, but I mean, there's, you know, there is not that many, you know, events here. I mean, these are, they're, they're, you know, you have to, we have to admit that there is a massive overtreatment that's going to happen and finding a biomarker, finding a way to better select these patients. I think that's probably the Holy grail here. Right. Absolutely. And that's what we're trying to really find and uh, you know I, I think the most prom- promising things here is no doubt in my mind uh, some form of a liquid biopsy circulating tumor DNA if it pans out because data is coming with colorectal cancer but also from bladder cancer with you know Tom Powell's uh, paper in Nature that this could be a way let's see you know uh, how many false positive and false negative they're going to be the last couple so that data and 
Sorry, that data in kidney, I mean, my, you know, I know the, the bladder data well, you know, that's, it's really at every, st every sort of milestone of disease progression, you know, circulating tumor DNA has incredible predictive value. But in kidney, it's not really panning out from all the data that I know, right? I no, mean, it's, it's, it's a much more challenging actually, problem. Absolutely. So it's the same test, the test that is used in that elegant paper by uh, Powell's and um, the colleagues at Roche is a bespoke assay. So you take the tumor while, you know, you do the, Alex does the surgery, probably take him 15 minutes. He'll clean everything and the tumor gets sent. They look at the top 10, 15, 20 mutation. They create a test and they immediately look at it after surgery. Maybe it was the first appointment post-op with Alex, you know, and, and that's, that's a bespoke assay. That's a good assay. And this actually was tried in renal cell cancer with work from Alex Institution for its Phil Abosh presented at ESMO 2019. It's not the same thing, the sensitivity and uh, uh, I believe the negative predictive value was very low, was below 50%. And that goes back to you know what we found in uh, renal cell cancer in general when we looked at NGS uh, versus other ways to uh, look at cancer in the blood renal cell with methylated uh, DNA that, that was found to be superior. However, these tests are not commercially available. Therefore, I think clinical factors and following eligibility criteria, specifically in renal cell cancer, are going to rule uh, for the time being. Um, Tony, the last couple of things we wanted to talk about were, first of all, toxicity and side yeah. effects, because that's definitely a big concern uh, for us urologists, Renu, isn't it? So, yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, like you mentioned, Ben, it's it's the tolerability of these treatments and, and the, the, the fact of over-treatment and potentially avoiding these side effects in patients who may not need treatment until they become N1 or ever need treatment at all how do we how do we balance that and I, you know I, I i acknowledge that's a really important consideration for you all as well uh, and uh, i note that you know the, the comment that safety was in line with expectations is reassuring but for some of us you know the ex you know becoming diabetic for example mm. uh, you know when your risk of relapse is is, is maybe not that high you know because you know 68 percent of these men don't relapse at two years so yeah. So the, the toxicity thing, I know the, the messages are very strong on this, in line with expectations, but grade three to five toxicity, just give us your messages, Tony, and try and sell this to the urologists who are going to refer <laughs> these patients. We're looking at this this nice lady post-nephrectomy with a T2 thing for, and you know, uh, talk to us, how are we going to talk to this lady about toxicity before we send her to you? Yeah, no, if we look at the toxicities overall, and here I would like to mention, when we put the grade three and five, we have to take it with a grain of salt. Those grade three, five, the CTAC criteria, were beautiful criteria done in the era of uh, cytotoxic chemotherapy. They evolved, you know, maybe for target therapy, they're fine, but for immunotherapy, I'm not uh, too sure. And then the attribution, I want to be very careful of the attribution. In the past, we had, you know, it was a bit more poetic, you know, definitely related, probably related, possibly related, possibly unrelated, definitely unrelated. Now you have to say related or unrelated. How are we going to know? At least I would say in the adjuvant setting, it's a bit easier than the metastatic setting where you have so many other, you know, uh, things uh, going on. Having said so, the top two side effects were hypo and hyperthyroidism that were, uh, you know, manageable. manageable yeah. uh, where we start seeing things, uh, you know, are the pneumonitis. So we had 11 patients on the Pembro, five only on the placebo. Uh, adrenal insufficiency, we had 10 patients 
versus one. Diabetes, you mentioned, I had a patient that developed, didn't recur, was on Pembro, developed type one diabetes. The patient was pre-diabetic, if any, and developed type one diabetes uh, on, on insulin. So we have nine patients uh, versus zero. The colitis, so, you know, eight patient uh, versus one. It tells you, you know, how did this colitis happen on, uh, you know, yeah, it placebo. So, you know, we, we do have these side effects. It's one year of therapy. And I mean, let me ask you this, why one year? You're probably gonna ask me back. I mean, I think we, we all agreed at some point in the adjuvant setting since the TKIs and before that uh, we do one year. I, I don't know why, why not six months versus 18 months versus nine months and two weeks. You know, I think you have to draw the line somewhere. But One of the things I want to tell you that with immunotherapy we looked at, and it's probably, I would say, is as good if not better than the toxicities, the grading of the toxicity is the use of high-dose systemic corticosteroid, which we define conventionally since these immunotherapy studies started by the equivalent of 40 milligram prednisone or higher. Because you want to exclude this patient that get 20 milligram uh, for their scan for, you know, as pre-medication. And that was 7%, 7.4% with Pembro, and it was less than 1% with placebo. So that's another way to look at the data, in my opinion, a bit more objective. Alex, any yeah. thoughts on that? And Ben, I'm going to ask you about the toxicity then. Uh, before I mean, we... is this where I'm wearing my hat, where I'm trying to beat Tony in this debate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. come on, go for it. In, in the breast cancer patients, 3% of people died. People die from these things, and we need to stop, you know, not over-treating. But, I mean, in reality, there's 1,000 patients in this, in this trial, and uh, I think the fact that there were no treatment-related deaths, I mean, it's very reassuring. I mean, they're clearly, you know, I... I you know, it, it, it's uh, suboptimal to get adrenal insufficiency, even, even hypothyroidism. But, you know, and realistically, I mean, when you look at this and you look at S-Track, I mean, the the, the 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 tolerability of this is much, much, much better. Yeah, and I think a lot of commenters said that when, uh, you know, well-counseled patients are accepting of it. But, um, Tony, I want to play you a clip from your mate, uh, Tom Powell's, when he discussed uh, this with you uh, on the Euromigos podcast recently. Big shout out to them. We love your podcast. Um, and Tony, we had a conversation with James Larkin. We had a podcast with him. And what James said that the melanoma field of learning is that there are some irreversible, dev potentially devastating side effects. And you'll need to see those once or twice, and it really focuses the mind. What, what worries you about most about that statement? Yeah, I think it's re worth revisiting because you say the Pembroke's for a year, but the type 1 diabetes is for life. For life, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so it, it, it's small, it's devastating, but let me tell you, for us urologists, this is going to be very important about that, I think. And that's why I think the OS will be very important. Patients are very accepting of things like that when they have metastases. But if, if, if they have like a 68% chance of not having metastases at two years and then they can be salvaged with a combination IO, I think, you know, that is still a, uh, not answered in this type of trial, of course, because the, 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 the control arm is not combination IO early. Um, but I, I, Ben, have you comments on the that toxicity side of it? Am I being too emotional about it? Yeah, a couple of things. It's, I guess... You could relate it to the AstraZeneca COVID nineteen vaccine. You know, there's a tiny chance that you'll get a serious toxicity, but you know, you know, on a, on a population level, you know, we'll, we'll get benefit from from everyone being vaccinated. I think it's a discussion you have with your patients, don't you think, Tony? You know, this is this is part of informed consent. You know, we would recommend the immunotherapy. We would explain the the small risks associated, the small serious risks associated, and we will help the patient make a decision. 
Yeah. Yeah. Not to quote, uh, you know, uh, my good friend James Larkin, but in melanoma, there is also a lot of use of ipilimumab. Yes. And maybe some of this was not the PD-1s, ipi, and the melanoma doc, I don't know, maybe way stronger than us. They use 3 mg per keg. There has been some studies with 10 mg per keg. Of course, if you have, there is a dose effect of toxicity with ipi, not much with CTLA-4, not much with PD-1 inhibitor. So that could be it. But, I mean, there is no doubt it's a risk. So what we're doing with Keynote 564, hopefully we're going to get more follow-up, more data. You know, this is driven by events. And when you write a protocol and you say, the first time I wanted 260, this is how the protocol is written. You want 260, 265 DFS event. If it's met, then now you want 140 OS events. So it's driven by event. So we have to wait for the next analysis. In the interim, we're going to generate quality of life data that is extensive, that's going to be at ESMO. There'll be an oral presentation, virtual, in Paris. Uh, we're going to look at high risk of recurrence. So um, among these patients you mentioned that are intermediate high, the 85%, among all the population, I want to see who has grade four, who has sarcomatoid. What's their yeah. disease? What's their hazard ratio? Imagine if their hazard ratio is 0.8. That would be strange because everything is telling us high-grade tumor, sarcomatoid tumor, do way better with immunotherapy uh, than TKI, for example, yeah, just because there's a lot of activation of the immune pathways there. The APM machinery, you know, is, um, you know, plentiful pdl one expression. We're going to also look, I think that's very important at some point, at the central review, because, you know, there was a discordance between central review and investigator assessment in ASTRAC. So we're going to look in Keynote 564 at central review, and we hope it is, it follows the pattern and it's positive. There are other adjuvant studies going on that we, we didn't talk about. Some of them finished accrual, uh, where the primary endpoint is central review. And we can argue, should it be central? Should it be investigator assessment or should it be both? Yeah, fair enough. So you think that's why, you know, emotions start enrolling before you, I believe. You think that's why, you know, 564 reported out sooner? Why, why do you think the difference? I mean, where is it the activity of the drug? Uh, you know, so many things. So the activity of the drug could be there's a lot of studies where Atizo actually in a similar setting, we can argue Tom, Tom and I, Tom Powers and I have a lot of, you know, um, about this in bladder. So there is second line metastatic bladder where near identical, but not identical trial. One with Pembro was with Atizo, different result. And there is of course the Atizo or the PDL1 inhibitor in general in renal cell. How did they fare compared to the PD1 where the data showed OS benefit? So that could be the drug. Second, it could be the central review versus investigator. Investigator is what you do in clinic. You don't wait for bigger, and I do in clinic. Uh, while, you know, in central review, you have to wait. Maybe maybe your local radiologist know, know more. It doesn't mean the radiologist there centrally is right, but it's a different way to assess. And, of course, you need all the scan read, et cetera. So if this didn't go at the same time as the trial it was accruing, if it was left till the end, let me tell you, you can't hire 5,000 radiologists overnight. Uh, so the third thing is something we do not know, which could be around baseline characteristic. So I, I think 
you know, we may have more relapses just because by chance or by, you know, the urology referral, we end up with higher risk disease. Despite we called it intermediate high, we may end up with higher risk disease. We may end up with more T4, M1 NED, and N plus than emotion trial. And that we will only know, it's probably unlikely, right? But we will only know when we know the baseline characteristic. But I expect emotion to be read quite soon. It's a smaller study. Yeah, it will be. Yeah. And Alex, uh, the final question, you brought it up earlier, is is cost. Uh, and so um, we were pleased to see that FDA are um, uh, doing expedited review for this for consideration. And obviously, I'm sure it's going to get approved. We'll all be interested in the label. But this is expensive stuff, isn't it? So so what what are your thoughts on cost? And Ben, well, uh, yeah, I'll yeah. answer that question then. Yeah, I'll just I'll give a little bit sort of, you know, that we, we, we did this project or, uh, you know, one of our fellows uh, sort of did this a few years ago, Ben Rista, who's uh, now at University of Connecticut, and he really looked at all the adjuvant therapy out there. This is before, you know, S-Drag, before any, uh, there was any approval for any um, systemic adjuvant treatment in GU. And if you really look under the hood and see what the oncology community accepts for, you know, adjuvant therapy, like for instance, you know, what's the disease-free survival benefit of tamoxifen versus placebo? It's 11%. What's the overall survival? It's 4%, right? I mean, in colorectal, it also, the overall survival benefit is on the order of 1% to 3%. I mean, that is it. And it's widely accepted adjuvant therapy, right? So actually, the bar is really low here to clear. Now, the problem is, is that for tamoxifen, monthly costs are about 13 bucks, 13 US dollars. Now, for, you know, there's there's a nice paper on this by uh, Tina Watson, who looked at, you know, quality adjusted life years for combination therapy for, you know, Pembroaxi. And I mean, what, Tony, it's like over $250,000 for, you know, one quality adjusted life year. And that's in a therapy that has an overall survival advantage, right? Over $250,000 when you have an overall survival advantage. Here, the costs are very similar but we don't have an overall survival advantage. So by my calculation here of sort of quality adjusted life years, it would cost an infinite amount of money to pay for one quality adjusted life year right now, right? With the data that we have now. So I think the costs here are a real problem um, that, you know, I think we have to sort of adjudicate and, uh, and figure out, uh, you know, I don't know what the cost considerations were, but, you know, important for the audience to know that S-Track was, you know, sunitinib in the adjuvant, there, in the adjuvant setting was FDA approved, but it wasn't approved by the Europeans. And I'm curious to see how this, uh, you know, or in Australia, right? I don't, I don't think that was approved there either. Yeah. So, um, so I, I, you know, I'm curious to see how this uh, pans out um, for those reasons. And Alex, the cost um, is not just linked to the drug, right? This is administered in a day therapy center. It's um, it's all that involved. All the extra blood tests we'll be doing. So there's quite a significant cost to society for giving this treatment. Yes, yeah. for that That's reason, treatment. I think the gastroenterologist, the pulmonologist, yeah. uh, yeah. endocrinologist. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but look, that's what we have to figure out is how do we best, uh, you know, we can't figure that out today, but the, the tax dollar that, you know, someone's going to have to pay for this stuff. And I, I think that's a really important consideration for society in general. And I think that's why, um, as you hint at, Alex, uh, in in uh, S-Track, that did not lead to uh, widespread reimbursement outside the US. Um, and I think it's going to be the same with this, Ben. I'd be I'm totally shocked if this led to any type of approval here. I don't, they wouldn't even try without OS here. So it's very important. It's very important for us to see what happens in the US.
US, but um, three quarters of the patients in this study were outside the US. So it'll be very interesting to see uh, how, how outside the US uh, this is received by regulators and appro- people who approve these sorts of things. Um, any, any final comments uh, from you, gents? Tony, again, congratulations, congratulations to you. Congratulations, Tony. Yeah. All, all the investigators, uh, all the patients involved in this study, absolutely fantastic. It's a really, really important study, but we can <laughs> tell that we're waiting for more data. Here we go. Thanks very much, Alex, showing us this lovely picture. Uh, t- Tony, again. one last question to you. Are you going <laughs> to reciprocate by having a picture of Alex in your office? No, I am going to troll him right now on Twitter by <laughs> saying to everyone and tag his wife and all his family and distant family that he has a picture of me in his office, which is just, I'm going to let Ben, Ben going to be, going to defend me, Ben Davis. <laughs> it's absolutely it's on, fantastic. It's on. Next time, next podcast, bigger picture, Tony. Thank you. Oh my God. Uh, thank you. It's Great such to have a you, pleasure, uh, everyone. Yeah, well, look, congratulations again, and, and thanks very much. And that's all we got time for today. And thank you uh, very much to Ben Tran for coming to join us as well today, Ben. Uh, it's been great to have you. That was fun. Come great back to be back soon, Ben. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Thank you very much, everyone. Uh, That's all we have time for. We're posting this again as a YouTube video. That seemed to be popular when we did the last time, Renew, wasn't it? Yeah, good. So if you want more YouTube videos, uh, just drop us a note and let us know as well. And otherwise, uh, we'll talk to you again um, soon. Thank you very much, everybody. Oh, did we lose Tony already? Uh, We've lost him.